She was the largest ship of her day, and when she was christened, her name reflected that. Her story has been dramatized and romanticized several times throughout the years, the most recent of which has become a classic of modern cinema. Billed as unsinkable, she sadly proved to be anything but, and the tragedy that befell her is often cited as a cautionary tale against humanity's hubris. By now, you've probably figured out that I'm referring to none other than the Titanic, arguably the most famous and notorious passenger ship to ever set sail on the high seas. Meant to be a symbol of human achievement and ingenuity at the start of the 20th century, she went down, no pun intended, in history as an example of human error. What spurred the creation of the Titanic? What records did she break in her short lifetime? And why does her story continue to captivate and enthrall us over a century later? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. In 1997, filmmaker James Cameron, who, up to that point, was best known for his science fiction turns, namely the Terminator films and the sequel to Ridley Scott's Alien, surprised everyone with the release of a sweeping romantic epic set against the fateful maiden voyage of the Titanic. As many of you know, it tells the story of Jack Dawson and Rose DeWitt Bucator, two very different people from vastly different socioeconomic backgrounds, who meet and ultimately fall in love on the doomed ship. As to be expected, the sinking is the focal point of the film, and was the first to realistically portray what actually occurred based on first-hand accounts and evidence from studies of the wreckage. The film was a sensation, and went on to become one of the highest-grossing films of all time. As of April 2021, it remains in third place, just behind Avengers Endgame, with a worldwide gross of $2,194,439,542 US dollars, and went on to further cement the actual Titanic's reputation. But it's easy to blend fact with fiction. Separating the two becomes a bit more difficult, especially with a story that's become ingrained in the collective consciousness the world over. Luckily, the real history is just as fascinating and enthralling as anything Hollywood could ever produce. In fact, the ship was born out of a bitter rivalry and fierce competition between the two largest shipping firms in Britain at the time. At the dawn of the 20th century, two companies had the monopoly on transatlantic steamship travel, Cunard and the White Star Line. By 1910, Cunard owned and operated two of the fastest and most luxurious liners on the open sea, the Mauritania and the Lusitania, both of which began service in 1907. The Mauritania was the fastest ship at the time, with a clocked speed of some 23.69 knots, or 27.26 miles per hour, 43.87 kilometers per hour, a record it would hold for 22 years. The Lusitania, on the other hand, didn't travel nearly as fast, but was just as extravagant and was lauded for its lush, beautiful interiors. If the name of the latter ship sounds familiar, it's because it met its tragic demise on May 7, 1915, when a German U-boat torpedoed it, killing nearly 1,200 of the 1,959 passengers passengers on board, an event that would precipitate the United States' involvement in the Great War, World War I, two years later. By comparison, the White Star Line was severely lagging in its fleet. Focused less on speed and more on comfort for its passengers, comprised mostly of upper-class people and immigrants, it wasn't until its chief executive, J. Bruce Ismay, proposed the construction of three large ships that a plan was set in motion to not only rival but surpass Cunard. Ismay's idea was to create a new line of ocean liners whose sheer size of 882 feet, 269 meters in length, and 92.5 feet, 28 meters in width at their broadest points, would make them the largest 
largest to ever set sail. But it wasn't enough for him to make them the largest ships. He also wished to make them faster than anything Cunard had put out. So it was that, in 1907, just days after Cunard released the Mauritania and the Lusitania, that he presented his ideas to William J. Peary of the Harlan and Wolfe Shipbuilding Company. The result of that fateful meeting would be three brand new luxury ocean liners, designed to be the pride of the White Star Line. The Olympic, the Britannic, and, you guessed it, the Titanic. Two years later, in March of 1909, construction began on the second of these new ships, that is, the Titanic, at the Harland and Wolfe shipyard in Belfast, what's now Northern Ireland. By May 31, 1911, her massive hull had been completed, and over 100,000 spectators gathered to watch it launch down the slipways into Belfast's Logon River. From there, it was transported to a fitting dock, where a crew of workers would spend the next year constructing the ship's interiors and decks, as well as the 29 gargantuan boilers it would take to power her two steam engines. Also under construction were the seemingly watertight compartments that Shipbuilder magazine would go on to famously dub as, quote, practically unsinkable, unquote. Their design, which was deemed state-of-the-art at the time, was, in fact, doomed from the start. Featuring a double bottom and 15 bulkhead compartments, each equipped with electric watertight doors that could be operated both independently or altogether by a switch on the ship's bridge, the walls separating the compartments extended only a few feet above the waterline, meaning that water could pour from one to another with relative ease. Despite warnings and protestations from Harlan and Wolfe naval architect Thomas Andrews, construction went on as planned, and, by April 10, 1912, the Titanic was deemed ready for her maiden voyage. The day in question was a momentous occasion, attended by dignitaries of every kind. So, too, was its passenger list a who's-who of Edwardian-era luminaries from both sides of the Atlantic. John Jacob Astor IV, an American business magnate and heir to the Astor family fortune, was on board. So, too, was American socialite Margaret Molly Brown, a widow who was the heiress of a great mining fortune. Perhaps as to be expected, J. Bruce Ismay of the White Star Line, as well as Thomas Andrews of Harlan and Wolfe, were also on board to oversee the ship's performance and to ensure that her maiden voyage ran as smoothly as possible. Other prominent passengers were Isidore and Ida Strauss, the owners of Macy's department store in New York, Lady Duff Gordon, a prominent British fashion designer who was one of the first from that country to receive international acclaim and renown, and Benjamin Guggenheim, the American industrialist who was traveling with his mistress. But more than the A-listers, the largest group of passengers was comprised of immigrants who sought better lives and work opportunities in America. The ship, which was divided into first, second, and third-class sections, had its third-class accommodations overwhelmingly filled with more than 700 passengers, most of whom had paid less than 20 U.S. dollars for the trip. Despite the number of celebrities on board, it was largely from third-class tickets that the White Star Line made its profit, and the Titanic was no exception. The ship had been designed, in part, to offer third-class passengers better amenities and accommodations than other ocean liners of the day. Those in second class were treated to luxuries and amenities that would be comparable to those of first class on other ships. Titanic's second class section was comprised mostly of tourists, journalists, and academics, as well as the ship staff who waited hand and foot on the first class passengers. So it was that the ship departed from Southampton, England on the morning of April 10, 1912. After two stops in Cherbourg, France, and Queenstown, present-day Cobb, Ireland, she set sail for New York with some 3,300 souls on board, 2,400 35 of them passengers and a crew of some 900. 
But the launch wasn't without its troubles, of which some of the more superstitious among us have gone on to claim were omens of the Titanic's impending doom. As she was made ready for departure from Southampton, she narrowly missed a collision with another ship, the America Line's SS New York. In addition, a small fire broke out in one of her bunkers, though it raised little alarm, as coal fires weren't uncommon in steamships at the time. The stokers in the engine room were told to simply douse the hot coals with water and set them aside in order to get to the source of the blaze. Upon assessing the situation, however, both the captain, Edward Smith, and the chief engineer, Joseph Bell, arrived at the conclusion that the fire had not caused any significant damage that could compromise the structure of the hull, and ordered the stokers to control it as they pushed out to sea. Here there are a couple differing theories as to what became of that coal fire. One theory goes that the fire became uncontrollable after the Titanic left port, forcing the crew to attempt the transatlantic crossing at full speed, some 23 knots or 26 miles per hour, that's 42 kilometers an hour, making the eventual collision course with the iceberg four days later virtually impossible to avoid. The other theory states that the fire had been contained, but that the damage endured in the ship's hull was significant enough that, when she collided with the iceberg, the large floating mass struck the exact location where the fire had raged, causing the inevitable sinking that followed. Whichever theory aligns with what really happened remains a mystery, however, and continues to be debated amongst ship experts and historians alike. By the evening of April 14, 1912, the Titanic had been sailing for four days. In that time, nothing eventful had occurred, and everything appeared to be running smoothly. There had been sporadic messages from other ships that day reporting ice drifts in the North Atlantic, but the Titanic's crew didn't think much of it as they were sailing on calm seas under a clear, moonless sky. Then, at about 11.30 p.m. local time, a lookout reported an iceberg dead ahead, coming out of the fog like a ghostly apparition. He quickly rang the warning bell and phoned the bridge. Upon the captain's orders, the engine were reversed, and the vessel was sharply turned so as to avoid a head-on collision with the floating mass. For all intents and purposes, it appeared to both the lookout and the crew that the ship had merely grazed the iceberg as shards of ice had fallen onto the bow's deck. But little did they know that, hidden beneath the water's glassy surface, a 300-foot, 91-meter gash had been ripped into the ship's hull below the waterline by the iceberg's jagged bottom. By the time Captain Smith and the ship's architect, Thomas Andrews, had made it below deck to survey the damage, five of the fifteen supposedly watertight compartments had been filled with seawater, and the Titanic's bow had begun to take on water as well as it was slowly submerged beneath the surface. Realizing the severity of the situation, Andrews surmised that the ship would stay afloat for a good hour and a half or longer before sinking completely. It was then that Captain Smith made the decision to load the lifeboats, but not before wiring for help. What followed was a highly unorganized and panicked evacuation process in which passengers, namely women and children, were loaded onto the 16 available lifeboats and four Engelhardt collapsible boats. This, sadly, only accounted for about one-third of the people aboard the ship. The number of lifeboats had proven to be another fatal flaw. Upon departure four days prior, the Titanic had been equipped with only 20 lifeboats in total, which was the legal minimum at the time so as not to, quote, overcrowd the deck, unquote. This egregious oversight proved lethal for most of the passengers and crew, many of whom were forced to remain on the ship simply because there was no more room in the lifeboats. And here's the kicker. The number of lifeboats aboard the Titanic actually exceeded the British Board of Trade's requirements at the time. Andrews's initial estimate of an hour and a half proved incorrect, with the Titanic stubbornly staying afloat for nearly three hours before sinking beneath the icy waters of the North Atlantic at around 2.20 a.m. local time in the early morning hours of April 15, 1912. In that period of time, several instances of both cowardice and heroism were put on full display, elevating the Titanic's reputation to legendary status in the collective consciousness. J. Bruce Ismay, the aforementioned chief executive of the White Star Line, for example, helped load several lifeboats before he himself stepped into one of them.
Despite the fact that no women and children were within the vicinity when he did, he would forever be marked as a coward for surviving when countless other lives were lost. Margaret Molly Brown, the mining heiress, on the other hand, having been placed in a lifeboat, bravely yet unsuccessfully encouraged her fellow passengers to return to the sinking ship in order to search for survivors, forever cementing her renown and earning herself the nickname the unsinkable Molly Brown in the process. Isidore and Ida Strauss, the owners of Macy's department store, not wanting to be separated from each other due to their advanced years, simply returned to their cabin where they perished together. Thomas Andrews himself was reportedly last seen standing in the smoking room, gazing up at a painted portrait of the ship he had worked so hard to bring to life. And John Jacob Astor IV, the American business magnate and heir to the Astor family fortune, delivered his pregnant wife onto a lifeboat and stayed behind so that she and their offspring could survive. Other lives that went down with the ship included Captain Smith, as well as an entire orchestra, who famously played the hymn Nearer My God to Thee as the vessel sank lower and lower into the dark waters. In all, some 1,517 people lost their lives when the Titanic sank in the early morning hours of April 15, 1912. Of the 3,300 souls on board, only 705 survived when another ship, the Carpathia, having received the Titanic's distress signal hours earlier but too far away to reach her in time, gathered them up from each of the lifeboats it could find. In the days, weeks, and months following the tragedy, up to five individual boards of inquiry on both sides of the Atlantic had been made, conducting several hearings and interviewing survivors as well as consulting with naval and maritime experts in order to decipher what exactly had gone wrong. Naturally, the incident led to several reforms on ocean liners, namely the number of lifeboats aboard each vessel, as well as emergency practice drills that involved both crew and passengers, not to mention changes in construction and several inspections prior to launching. To this day, what exactly caused the Titanic's demise, aside from the iceberg collision, of course, remains the subject of debate with a number of theories having emerged. Some are logical, taking into consideration the aforementioned flaws that cast a shadow over her maiden voyage. Others are outlandish, with one even purportedly involving a quote-unquote psychic American writer, Morgan Robertson, who penned an eerily similar novella 14 years earlier known, rather ominously, as The Wreck of the Titan or Futility. In this work of fiction, a British passenger ship, known as the Titan, sinks in the North Atlantic after hitting an iceberg. Naturally, upon the Titanic disaster, the story was republished and gained a new following and audience, with readers proclaiming the man a clairvoyant. While Robertson reported time and again that the similarities, though eerie, were purely coincidental, it does cause a shiver to run up one's spine. Thanks in large part to the accounts of the survivors, the story of the Titanic will forever live on in the annals of history as an example of gross human error and the price of humanity's hubris. She was meant to be a symbol of ingenuity, yet is remembered as the first great disaster of the 20th century. What is it about her story that continues to intrigue us, now nearly 110 years after it occurred? Maybe it's the drama of ordinary people faced with extraordinary circumstances, or perhaps it's both the cowardice and heroism that were displayed in the face of such odds. It's unclear what causes it to leave a lasting impression upon the collective consciousness. But what is clear is that our fascination shows no signs of stopping, which, in this case, is probably for the better. They say that if we forget our history, we're doomed to repeat it. In the case of the Titanic, we must ensure that such a tragedy never be allowed to take place ever again. No amount of hubris is worth it. Thanks for listening. 
I do so hope you enjoyed this episode and found it intriguing. After all, the story of the Titanic goes way beyond that of Jack and Rose and James Cameron's masterpiece. If you like this kind of content and wish to see, or rather hear, more of it, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just go to anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button, where you'll be directed to three monthly support plans that fit any budget. Listening, liking, and sharing help too, so please do so wherever you can listen to your podcasts. Next week I'll be taking a look at one of the most sobering, if oft-overlooked events of World War one, so be sure to tune in next Thursday and every Thursday for a brand new episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next week.